So I'm going to talk a little bit about the wholesome and unwholesome roots. Perhaps in the small groups that we'll have later tonight, you can use your experience in the sit or during the last week of practice to share about uh, any kind of deepening sensitivity when the mind is skillful, when the mind is unskillful. As I mentioned in the guided sit, we're, you know, we're training the mind to be aware of a more subtle play of karma, of how things unfold, how stress, uneasiness of heart, and how release and happiness of heart, how they come to be based on the intentions in the mind. Last week I uh, briefly mentioned these outflows, the taints. So there's the outflow of sensuality, the outflow of becoming, and the outflow of ignorance. Ignorance means, in this case, it's the tendency to relate to dukkha, to stress, in an immature way. Like, it will go away on its own, or... I mean, all these sort of idealistic and not-so-helpful attitudes we have about suffering, that's what ignorance is. As opposed to wisdom, which is, well, if I'm suffering, if my heart is burdened or weighed down now, there are causes, and those causes are here. So a mature approach would be to be really interested in what the mind is doing in a way that's supporting the experience of stress. An immature way would be to blame it on our partner. Or I'm feeling yucky because he or she is treating me this way. Or the world is treating me this way. Or, you know, it's just fate. I'm just doomed to be miserable. So in some way we're, we have an immature or a, a not very accurate idea about suffering. And that idea, that wrong view, then makes it so we'll never... Um, be skillful because in a way we're never going to look in the right place never deal with it in a correct in a way that actually leads to results so this is our predicament you know where we're uh, in the world and uh, in a way we're lost and this is what we've talked about the last few weeks you know without the beginnings of wisdom where we trust the the history, the past, as it emerges in the present moment. You know, we have feelings of fear. We have feelings of regret. It's like the past. I've been talking about how it informs the present. But when we're not sensitive in life, when we're just overwhelmed or for whatever reason not awake, not sensitive, then it's like we lose our capacity to be skillful and to become more skillful. I couldn't quite remember whether I read this last week, but this is from the Dhammapada. It doesn't matter if we heard it before. It's just a few passages from the middle of the Dhammapada. Easy is life for someone without conscience, bold as a crow, obtrusive, deceitful, reckless, and corrupt. Difficult is life for someone with conscience, always searching for what's pure, discerning, sincere, cautious, and clean living. So this is sort of interesting. Now, the Buddha is saying, 
it's easy to be a, like a crow, you know, and take what you can get and, you know, the sort of animal nature. Because of these outflows, that's where the momentum is. It's easy for us to react. It's easy for us to close down, to give up in all the different ways that don't ultimately work. They don't really help in any lasting way. But it just seems to make so much sense. And it is difficult to be sensitive to our conscience, to be aware, sort of like, although we're living in the world as a personality, part of the mind is very sensitive to our conscience, to what we're feeling as we move through life. And in a sense, reading, like, our sensitivity to what's happening is triggering all of the information from past conditioning that is similar to what's happening right now, sort of arising. And some of that is really useful information. Some of it won't be so useful. And it's hard to be sensitive to all that. We don't quite know how to read it, interpret it. But we have to sort of cultivate that the wisdom that goes with that sensitivity. And the passage goes on, it says, one digs up one's own root here in this very world if one kills, lies, deals, goes to another spouse, or gives one up to drink and intoxicate. Good person, know this. Evil traits are reckless. Don't let greed and wrongdoing oppress you with long-term suffering. And then a little later, there is no fire like lust, no grasping like hate, no snare like delusion, no river like craving. It's easy to see the faults of others, but hard to see one's own. One sifts out the faults of others like chaff, but conceals one's own as a cheat conceals a bad throw of the dice. If one focuses on others' faults and constantly takes offense, one's own toxins flourish and one is far from their destruction. Did I read that last week? There's a famous passage where the Buddha talks to his son who was recently ordained as a novice monk in been a, a novice for maybe a year he's like eight or nine years old and the Buddha connects with him one day and gives him this really powerful teaching and the first part is he's telling him that you know if you speak an untruth even in jest uh, there's no way you can be uh, contemplative you know, somebody on the spiritual path and it's interesting that word samana you might have heard it's used a lot in the text uh, a, sort of a general term for somebody who's uh, an, a seeker um, sort of a formal like professional seeker as opposed to those that, like here so generally a, a monk of some sort so a samana the Buddha is saying that you, you know you can't be a samana you can't be a, a true seeker or if you are a true seeker and you don't respect truthfulness it's as if you turn your path upside down and this word samana evidently is related to the uh, the word uh, in tune, as in music, being in tune, like an instrument is in tune. And 
it's often associated with what's wholesome. You know, when you're in balance and tune, you're wholesome. When you're out of tune, your actions, your way of being is unwholesome. And so it's just interesting that uh, instead of some more linear conception of being um, a samana, a monk, or a contemplative, you know, like you're pure as opposed to base over here, but it's much more about being in balance. And I think it's really useful in terms of understanding karma. It's not about sort of not having anger, but it's about being in balance so that if anger arises, then the mind is using it as a teacher and seeing, oh, those intentions are unskillful. These intentions are really wholesome. So anyway, he's talking to Rahuli's first making the point about truthfulness and then the second point he makes in this very thorough thorough, um, analysis really he says before you do anything in terms of your action in terms of your words and even in terms of your thought before you should reflect is this skillful or not will it cause me or others harm or not if it does if it is going to cause yourself harm or another harm then you should do what you can to abandon it. If it isn't going to cause you or somebody else harm, then you can continue. But continue reflecting. So before you do something, while you're doing something, after you've done something of some action, spoken some words, had some thought, you should be reflecting, was that skillful? Did it cause me or another harm or not? And again, like the Dhammapada passage suggests, you know, being conscious, respecting the conscious, being really sensitive to this level of intention in the mind, it, it's a lot of work. It can feel oppressive, but it's not nearly as oppressive as going through life blindly, where you're, we're just sort of following our habits, doing what we want to do, what we can get away with. So, I think we talked maybe the first week, we had a discussion about how, you know, initially this insight into karma, into cause and effect, and in particular, cause and effect in terms of what the mind is doing. Because generally, we kind of get cause and effect. You touch a hot stove, your hand gets burnt. You know, you don't eat for a while, you get hungry. But in a more um, sort of subtle way, to understand what the mind is doing as karmic activity, you know, actions that have consequences with a degree of specificity and subtlety that we're mostly oblivious to. So when we kind of get what a big difference it makes what the mind is doing, it's a real insight that initially it feels oppressive because all of a sudden we're responsible. In a way, it feels easier to uh, feel like life is just happening to us and we're just caught, you know, in the great stream of causes and conditions. And I can't help it if my family of origin made me the way I am or I've got these particular genes or I'm in this particular time and place. And, you know, I'm just going to do my best to have a nice go at it. And, uh, but it's not really my responsibility because it's basically a big setup. And 
this is a very easy, this somewhat nihilistic view, is a very easy thing for us to fall into because we have been frustrated in our attempts to take control of life so many times. Controlling our partners, trying to control our body, control our urges, and have been basically defeated by those things over and over again. And then it really seems to be telling us that life actually is its own beast. And uh, we have one choice, which is to submit, because to be fighting it just makes it more stressful. And it almost sounds like this is the teaching of the Buddha, just to submit to the beast. But that instruction is not the initial instruction to submit to the beast. The initial instruction is to learn how to be skillful. Learn that there is a way to participate in this world of ours. Initially, um, you know, it's one of the ways the Buddha talked about this is in terms of the... Uh, four exertions that I mentioned last week of abandoning and preventing unwholesome states from coming, developing and maintaining the wholesome states. There are a couple of suttas that I did put in our on our website and then they disappeared before I saved them. <laughs> so I'll get them up. Um, but you can track them down very easily on your own if you want to, you know, for some reason you wanted to look at them tonight. Because you can just go and everybody who's interested in sort of a serious study of the teachings of the Buddha, you might want to bookmark accesstoinsight.org, which um, some of the students of Ajahn um, Tanisaro have created. And it has a lot of wonderful resources for ter- in Theravada Buddhism, including most of the, the discourses of the Buddha are there. So when you go there, you'll see there's a little search function, and you can just put in MN, and then the, that's the middle link discourses. And um, so, for example, if you wanted to read the instructions to Rahula, that's MN61. But the ones I want to talk about tonight are middle link discourse number 19 and number 15. previous Buddhist studies, we looked carefully, I think, at this middle length discourse, uh, number 19, sometimes translated as two kinds of thoughts. And it's really the Buddha, one of the times the Buddha is explaining the difference between skillful and unskillful, using the uh, three wholesome and unwholesome roots. Remember last week I I read another discourse, and if you want to see that, that's um, middle length discourse number 9, where the Buddha lists the Ten, thing, ten things that are unwholesome and the ten things that are wholesome. So it's basically the precepts and, and then the three wholesome roots. So he, the Buddha says, and what is unwholesome? Killing living beings, or how we usually translate it, harming living beings is unwholesome. Taking what is not given is unwholesome. Misconduct and sensual pleasures is unwholesome. Sometimes it's translated as sexual misconduct. And then the four types of wrong speech, false speech or lying is unwholesome, malicious speech is unwholesome, you're trying to hurt somebody with your words, harsh speech, you know, speech that is unnecessarily rough is unwholesome, 
in idle speech or gossip is unwholesome. And then he lists the, the last three are just the three unwholesome roots. Craving or covetousness is unwholesome. Ill will or aversion is unwholesome. And wrong view or delusion is unwholesome. And then what, whole, what is wholesome is just the opposite. So I read that or went through that last week. And then in another way now in MN19, Middle Link Discourse number 19, the Buddha is talking about two kinds of thought skillful and unskillful and you might think about these in terms of healthy and unhealthy skillful is healthy in the sense that when thought when intention is healthy skillful it's enlivening it's liberating so it's by definition so the way you actually find out what's skillful isn't by memorizing oh Mark says or the Buddha said that um Love, loving kindness is skillful. But what you want to see is when there's an intention that you call loving kindness, you want to see directly what is the effect of that intention in the mind. What happens when that's there? What happens immediately and what gets set in motion? So it's not theoretical. It's really important that it's seen directly. Like you might have been sitting there the last 15 minutes when we were doing more of that open attention practice and observing intention in the mind. You might have been sitting there with that general awareness of the body because we had cultivated that awareness with the body scan. So there we're somewhat aware of the body. And then for whatever reason, maybe I mentioned it, I don't remember now, but for some reason, let's say, you just had the wherewithal to, like basically the mind remembered, oh, I could be loving or caring about the body and there arose this intention you know I care about this body may you be happy body may you be at ease so just that intention to care or that intention to be kind that intention to appreciate you know whatever the particular flavor was then one, we could notice that that intention itself is a beautiful thing. It has the flavor of happiness or ease. And then it set, tends to set in motion a sense of release and ease. And then if, they, if we really are mindful in those moments, it doesn't matter what anybody says. We know in our bones, in a sense, that, that that's wholesome. And... The other thing that gets reinforced in the mind is how relevant it is to be doing this work. Like how easy it is, you know, that the suffering we experience is being created moment by moment right here in this play of intention. It is the most important thing. And this is the big turning point. I mean, I'm guessing none of us are really here yet in this place. None of us are completely sincere about the, this truth that it's all about intention. Because if we were, we wouldn't care so much about all these other details in our life. I mean, it doesn't mean we wouldn't put on our clothes in the morning and feed our bodies and things like that. But we wouldn't be doing those things as if that's where happiness resides, by getting a, you know, the right kind of meal together or getting the right set of clothes together or having the right experience with a friend or... So to whatever degree 
we're looking for happiness and all these things where we tend to look for happiness, to that degree, we haven't sort of um, made this hurdle yet in practice. And it's really about, I think it's really about a a kind of sincerity. It's like uh, a deep respect for what the mind is doing. And then what comes out of that is a deep vigilance, a powerful vigilance just watching what the mind is doing. Because, not because we want to be good, but because this is how you be happy and become happy. You know, this is, this sets emotion that causes for happiness by being really attentive to what the mind is doing all the time. And there's like no shortcuts. It's, it's not enough to be on the surface a good person. It's really about seeing directly whether what the mind is doing is leading to constriction or release. You can't, we can't imitate it. It's like, uh, it, it doesn't really work in the end. Because it would be based on greed. See, the only way to uproot greed from the mind is to study intention. Because any image we have of like the right way to live, then the, in a sense, the ego says, well, that's what I'm going to do. You know, I got, the, I got the gold, I got the instructions from the Buddha or from God or from somebody. And now, because I want to be happy, I'm going to do that. But see, that's greed. I mean, it, it's, it's probably better to follow the instructions from Jesus or Buddha or somebody like that as opposed to, you know, some other instructions that we've gotten along the way. But still, the attachment and the, the sort of mind's fixation on there being a problem, wanting to be saved, it's inherently stressful. But by studying intention, all problems are undermined. And then arises there arises the experience of no problems. So in the sutta number 19, Middle Link Discourse number 19, the Buddha says, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, bodhisattva. So he's saying, like, I'm a practitioner like you. When I was a practitioner like you guys, so I had the thought occurred to me. Suppose I divide my thoughts into two classes, two categories. Then I set on one side thoughts of sensual desires, thoughts of ill will, thoughts of cruelty, you know, unwholesome thoughts. And I said on the other side, thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-ill will, thoughts of non-cruelty. And as I abided thus, diligent, ardent, resolute, a thought of sensual desire or any of those unwholesome, it arose in me and I understood thus. This thought of sensual desire or whatever has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana. When I considered it, considered in this way, it subsided in me. Right? So it just, this is enough just to see that intentions are unwholesome is enough for, to cause their, them to subside, to fall away. When I considered it in this way, it subsided. Whenever a thought of sensual desire or ill will or cruelty arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it, did away with it, simply by seeing it as unskillful. 
And that's the thing is not to be seduced by the content, but to notice in the moment that it hurts, that it's heavy. That's the thing. It's the mind discerning the quality of the intention, which means it really has to be willing to feel the yuckiness of it. Because without feeling the yuckiness of it, there's no letting go. We can't let go because we want to let go or because we think it's bad. The letting go happens because we actually directly experience it being bad, in a sense. We experience the mental contraction of it. And the Buddha has some graphic images of like being disgusted, like uh, wearing a garland of rotting flesh. You know, If you discovered you were wearing a garland, a necklace of rotting flesh, well, you would take it off. You wouldn't have to think, you know, should I take it off or not? And it's the same thing when you see the mind is angry, caught in anger, that there's a natural disgust. Like, why would anybody do this? Why would anybody consume this, feed on this? No, it's crazy. We only do it when we're not aware. We're only angry when we're not aware of it. Nobody is clearly aware and anger, angry. You can just experiment with your own, or any of the unwholesome qualities of mind. You can just see, can you be fully mindful of an unwholesome state and continue to act it out? Or maybe another experiment would be, you know, can you be fully mindful of a wholesome state and abandon it? No, when, when we're really aware of a wholesome state, there's a natural tendency towards expansion this sort of uh, awakening and enlivening of that particular quality. When you really are mindful of kindness in your heart, generosity in your heart, the appreciative joy in your heart, patience, it just expands. It becomes more pervasive because the wholesome qualities, they are a mirror of the nature of the mind itself. So the more you look at them, what you see is the nature, you see Dhamma the way it is. So you don't, they, they have a tendency to uh, fill the space of the mind and body, so there's nothing left but that. And there's an opening to Dhamma. Like, oh yeah, like, this isn't just me being kind. It's like the metta, we use metta more than the word loving kindness sometimes. Because it's meant to evoke a universal quality of loving kindness, not a personal I like you quality of kindness. Then the Buddha says the same for the others. As I abided thus diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of renunciation, non-ill will, non-cruelty arose in me. I understood thus. So he's going to do the same practice. This thought of renunciation has arisen in me. So just recognizing the intention. This does not lead to my own affliction, to the affliction of others, or to the affliction of both. It aids wisdom, does not cause difficulties. It leads to nibbana, to release. So, first the mind recognizes, and then with the sustaining of mindfulness, it recognizes cause and effect, like what it sets in motion. So we not only see the intention, but we sustain attention with the intention in the mind, and we see what it's leading to. That's how we really know if it's wholesome or unwholesome. And then the insight gets grounded. If I think and ponder upon this thought, even for a night, even for a day, even for a night and day, I see nothing to fear from it, right? Nothing to fear from renunciation, non-ill will, non-cruelty. 
but with excessive thinking and pondering I might tire my body when my body is tired my mind becomes disturbed when my mind is disturbed it is far from concentration so I steadied my mind internally quieted it brought it to singleness and concentrated it why is that? so my mind should not be disturbed practitioners whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon that will become the inclination of her mind if he or she frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of renunciation non-ill-will non-cruelty he or she has abandoned the thought of central desires ill-will and cruelty to cultivate the thought of renunciation non-ill-will non-cruelty and then her mind inclines to the thoughts of renunciation to non-ill-will to non-cruelty and he gives this wonderful image which I'll just mention briefly and uh I forget if it was in the five faculties class, but you know the image is when there are a lot of unwholesome qualities, then we're like a shepherd during the rainy season when the seedlings are growing and you're really watching the cattle or the sheep and you know tapping them this way and this way to keep them on the path and out of the fields. Because if you let them wander around, the farmers are going to get really angry and probably sue you or beat you or something. But later, after the rice has grown and been harvested, then the farmers don't really care for a couple months. You know, they actually probably prefer the cattle, the sheep, to wander through the fields and to poop here and there, fertilize the fields. And then you can sort of lean back against the tree and you just know that the, the herd is close by. You don't have to keep tapping them here and there. And it's the same with our mind. When we have thoughts of renunciation and non-ill will, like kindness and compassion and non-cruelty then we can just be more relaxed in our practice we don't have to be sort of controlling but when the mind's a mess and we're drawn to anger and ill will then we have every reason to be a hyper-vigilant shepherd and really on top of it and really no I'm not going to do that nope don't do that nope and even though that vigilance might seem neurotic it's still so much more wholesome than just letting our mind be swept away with whatever our unwholesome habits might be at that time. The other um, discourse I'm not going to spend too much time with, but uh, I recommend one of the links uh, on the website is an article from Andy Olensky, the senior scholar at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, a wonderful teacher, and uh, he wrote an article for Tricycle about five years ago in 2006 called Changing Your Mind and I just made a document and put the link up on the, uh, on the Buddhist Studies website and in that he's, he's basically walking us through this other middle link discourse um, let's see it's number 15 I think yeah number 15 Middle Link Discourse number 15. But he has most of it paraphrased in his article, so you may just be sufficient just reading the article, where he's talking about this process. And this is something you could share in the small group tonight. It's just a different approach. He says, Andy says, this means that every single moment of consciousness is a moment of practice, whether we like it or not. We are practicing, this is an interesting sentence, he says, we are practicing to become ourselves. The critical question really is just how much 
we want to participate is just how much we want to participate in the process. As I understand his teachings, the Buddha was expounding what we may, might call a post-Copernian revolution. The world really does revolve around us insofar as our mind is the instrument for the local construction of meaning, right? We are constructing our own meaning. Left unattended, the mind will tend to organize around greed, hatred, and delusion and will create unwholesome states that obstruct wisdom and lead away from awakening. The solution to the problem, at least according to the earliest strata of Buddhist tradition, is to learn the healthy skill of transforming mind, such mind states. And then he goes on to talk about it. And this is a different way. And you can just notice, I, as I was reflecting on this today, it made a lot of sense. Although I, I hadn't actually put in a lot of time with this particular approach. But when I did it today, it really made sense. So he says, the Buddha says in the Sutta number 15, a person with unwholesome qualities is displeasing and disagreeable to me. So you're around somebody who's angry, you're around somebody who's greedy, you're around somebody who's deluded, right? Now, instead of judging that person, the key to what the Buddha is saying is notice how you feel being around that person. Like, it doesn't feel good to be around that person. It's different than judging that person. Because we're noticing that I hurt being around that person. It's disagreeable. It's displeasing. And that's the, that's the first step. The second step, then, is this, it's really an insight. It's an inference. If I were to have unwholesome qualities, like if I was to be angry like that person's angry that I'm around, I would be displeasing and disagreeable to others. So, normally we think, God, if she wasn't that way or if he wasn't that way, I'd be happy. Now we're saying, Oh, if I'm not going to be that way, if I could not be that way, then things would be good. That would be good for me and for her. See, it's a totally different... It's like we're really taking responsibility for the one thing we can deal with, which is, oh, when we see so-called unskillful actions out there, what we want to say is, oh, I shouldn't be like that. That would be good for them and for me. If her aversion doesn't cause aversion here, his greed doesn't cause greed here. You know, their delusion doesn't cause delusion here. It's like the whole world, at least this country, is crazy with politics, right? And what does it make us? It makes us crazy with politics. Instead, we should see the world as crazy with politics, and we should say, oh, it would be really good if I'm not crazy with politics. That would be really good for me and for everybody else. You see the whole world caught up in consumerism, you know, and instead of hating them or instead of getting caught in that, we can have that same response, turning back on ourselves. A person, then step three, a person who knows this should arouse in her mind thus, I shall not have unwholesome qualities, right? So that's that owning of responsibility. And then step four, a person should review uh, herself thus, do I have unwholesome qualities? So this is this ongoing reflection. So first is the resolve, like, you know, no, that's not a good thing for me or for them. And then that vigilance, like, well, do I have unwholesome qualities? And then step five, when she reviews herself, if she knows I have unwholesome qualities, then she should make an effort to abandon those unwholesome qualities. 
And if there are no unwholesome qualities, then one knows there are no unwholesome qualities. And the Buddha has this great line. Let's see if I can find it here. I have no unwholesome qualities. Then he or she can abide happy and glad, training day and night in wholesome states. Right? Just to continue on with the practice. And the, the image the Buddha uses in the sutta is just as a, a person might look into a mirror and see a smudge or some dirt on their face, would want to wipe it off. In the same way, you know, as we're living in the world, experiencing our own or other people's unwholesome states, each time we see something unwholesome, instead of uh, getting angry or get, becoming distracted or in denial or reacting in any way, we immediately internalize it. Oh, but that result, I don't want to do that. And then, and then that leads us to check, am I doing that? And if we're not doing that, we can appreciate that's a cause for joy. Like, to be happy that I'm not in that state, that's a great cause for happiness. Every time we see somebody in a negative state, could be a cause for happiness for us by either seeing that we're also caught and abandoning it, which is cause for happiness, or seeing that we're not caught in anything unwholesome and appreciating the not being caught. So any of this, of course, would be appropriate to bring up in your small group. I think last week I mentioned that, you know, in terms of the small group, um, just uh, reflecting on the three wholesome and the three unwholesome roots in any way that makes sense, like, talking about how you're confused about what is actually wholesome and unwholesome and how you've attempted to become more clear about recognizing when it is that the mind is wholesome, when it is that the intentions in the mind are not wholesome. Or you could reflect on either of these two discourses we just went through. You know, just how the Buddha is suggesting that we look, study the mind. I mentioned last week, too, that one thing you might share in your group are places in your life where you're that dull force, where the pain from being unskillful has to really knock you down before you get, oh, I'm not being skillful. And places in your life where the sensitivity is very refined. I think most of you remember this metaphor of the horse. So even if the charioteer just makes a little clicking sound, life gives us just a very subtle response. We're right on it. We know, oh yeah, that's not the direction I want to go. So just places where we tend to be really dull and we really have to suffer before we realize we're being unskillful and places in life where we tend not to be unskillful anymore because the mind is very attentive and it uses its conscience, it uses the information from the past to be attentive and to avoid making mistakes like we've made in the past. So who knows how many are here tonight, but let's count off by 20, and then if there are more than 60, we'll make groups from there. Um, you want to start? Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Julie? And then the back row, Susan. And Charlie, 18. Anybody else sitting down? Okay. 
And then, are there just two of you back there? So, uh, why don't, Kevin, why don't you be one and Kat be two? And so, one and two would be bigger groups. So, why don't you use one in my office and two in Shelley's office? And three, four, five, and six in the community room? And seven and eight in the lobby or outside if it's warm enough? And uh, nine on the white couch, ten in the workshop in the basement, eleven in the hallway in the basement? Uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. I think it's okay outside. Well, how about 18 kind of in the middle there and 19 in the middle here and 20 in the lobby. Okay, and I'll ring the bell for all the groups in earshot. Otherwise, have your own timer. And we should have plenty of time for three minutes a person, a little bit less for the groups of four, number one and two. And one of you, uh, for the group that's going to my office, need to get my keys.